So question this morning, what are these, I want to see if you can figure out what these people have in common. Helen Keller, Amy Carmichael, Robert Murray McShane, Florence Nightingale, Sadhu Sundar Singh, and Corey Ten Boom. Gary, I thought I heard you say it. They're all single. I'll give you a few more names. I, I, I prepared a longer list if, if you were struggling, but Gary, he ruined the curve for the rest of you. Uh, think about the Bible. Think about Joseph in, in Genesis, Miriam, Moses' sister, Martha, Lazarus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, John the Baptist, and of course, during his incarnation, Jesus Christ. All of these people were single, single people. None of them, as far as we know, ever found a partner to marry, or perhaps they were not looking because they chose to live a single life. Uh, we know in our culture, single-person households have increased fivefold since 1960. The number was 7 million. Uh, it's, it's somewhere around 36 million. Those stats are from 2019. The population living with at least one other person hasn't even doubled in the same amount of time. But the number of single people is just it's like five times as many. Uh, there were 3.8% of the population in 1960, but as, as of 2019, uh, they're 11.1%. And, and we stop and we just think, like, even for married people, um, a significant portion of our life is still spent being single, even if we choose to marry. Usually the first 20 to 25 years, we're single. And, and perhaps the last 10 to 15 years, uh, we typically spend as a single person as well. Now, when I was a single person... I had ambitions, dreams, plans, things that I was pursuing. I was going to finish my music degree, and then I was going to break into the Christian music industry somehow. Uh, don't ask me for the plan. I hadn't developed the plan at that point, but I was going to do it. And then this wonderful, beautiful, godly young woman came along, and suddenly I couldn't imagine life without her. And we married. And then suddenly I was no longer free to follow my dreams and pursue my aspirations on my own. I had to consider Jen and how my decision-making might impact her. And then God gave us kids. Actually, right away, God gave us kids. Our oldest son is a honeymoon surprise. Um, and things got infinitely more complicated and as the Lord would have it, when it comes to the timing of this passage in our series, here we are talking about this on Mother's Day. And what mom here in the room this morning or watching on the live stream has not gladly and consistently given up her own interests, desires, wants for the sake of the, the, the cute little moany voice that we're hearing right now in the room, her her. It's just precious. Now, when I was a single guy, I didn't think that was precious. But after you've had some kids and then they get older, you go, oh, that was so sweet. That's so precious. And every good mom does this because she loves the children that God's given her, whether biologically or through adoption. She loves her kids. That's just how God made moms. And aren't we glad? 
Amen. That's right. We're glad. And the next time, uh, and, and so the text this morning, uh, what we're dealing with is the reality of being single-minded. Say all that about b- being single, moms and, and kids. Th- this section of the text of 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing the singles in the church at Corinth. And, and so we want to talk about what it means to be single-minded and, and realizing that many of us are married in the room. So whether you're married or entangled with other lives, um, as we head into the text, I want to extend the application beyond the single adults in the room to every single one of us. God has no rival in terms of our affection and devotion, and, and, and we should never cultivate those rivals in our hearts. So, so the point is that even married people are called to be single-minded when it comes to following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the clear call of God is to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love Him more than we love ourselves. And whether we're single or married, we're still called to be single-minded when it comes to our devotion to the Lord. So let's go to the text this morning, 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to read verses 25 to 40. It says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, you, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then the one who marries his betrothed does well, and the one who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet my judgment is that she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's go back. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, betrothal, being betrothed to someone, is a heftier version 
of what we would call engagement uh, to be married. And in that culture, uh, it's a big deal, especially if you're a Jewish convert to Christianity. They bring a lot of their, uh, their past ceremony and significance of betrothal into that reality. And there's already a commitment and an expectation that's been made in the relationship, which is hard to undo. But to dissolve a betrothal was not impossible, although it was uncommon. But it could be undone, and sometimes was. Regarding this issue, Paul acknowledges there's no explicit command from the Lord about this on betrothal uh, or in our culture engagement, in the ending of an engagement. And so he goes on in verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, now that phrase, this clarifying verse, ought to have your full attention. This, this phrase, in view of the present distress. You could replace the word distress with crisis here, because right around the time of Paul writing this letter, Rome got a new emperor. He's a lovely fellow by the name of Nero, and perhaps you've heard of him. What I'm going to share is fairly graphic, so parental discretion is advised. This wonderful human being, who was known for his cruelty and depravity, uh, he, he, what he liked to do, he, he delighted to target Christians in particular. This, this, was, this is a guy who had murdered his own mother. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Uh, he had murdered his own mother for meddling in political schemes behind his back. Now, from the point of, the, of Paul's writing, we, if you go forward two years later, there's going to be a big fire in Rome that Nero is going to be very quick to pin on the backs of Christians as a pretext for more persecution. Um, this man, Nero, would take Christians he would dip them in hot wax, and he would impale them on a pole, and then he would use them as garden luminaries to light his parties. This man was sick and sadistic and satanic. And all this is happening. It's all beginning to ramp up as Paul is writing this letter. So you can see why he would choose this term, this present distress. And with that context in mind, we, we read on in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Do you see the context here? Timing matters to God. The timing of these things matters to God. It's actually very important to him. It's, it's not always just a matter of doing the right thing. Very often in God's economy, there's also a right time to do the right thing. And to discern that, we have to disengage from the world and all of the distractions and, and cultivate hearts that listen to the Lord, to know the right timing, to do the right thing. In fact, it's all over the New Testament. In Romans 5, 6, uh, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a right time, the right moment. Galatians 4, 4, Paul again, But when the fullness of time had come... 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. Timing. In in John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. See, Jesus knew this truth about God's timing being very important. So he didn't let his half-brothers goad him into uh, doing something that would have been a good thing to do, but at the completely wrong time. Going up to the feast to present himself to the Jewish nation. It was the right thing to do, but it was the wrong time. Godliness is connected to timing in a very significant way. So Paul's advising all the single people to consider deeply whether marriage is something that they ought to enter into at this moment in time. Is it the right time to get married? Or, or whatever other decision you may be weighing Is it a good thing to do given the present circumstances? I mean, just consider how hard it would be to face the persecution I just described as a single person. That's hard enough to know that at any moment there would be a knock on your door and the royal guards under Nero's directive would come and take you away to make you a garden luminary. That's hard enough to live with. But think about every action movie you've ever seen. When the bad guys can't do anything to the, to the good guy, what do they do? They go after their family. They trot his wife and children out in front of him and torture them or kill them. And, and this, is, this is the heart of what Paul's trying to get us to think about. He's trying to get his readers to think about this. Um, these are the kind of considerations he wants singles at Corinth to think deeply about before they move ahead with major life decisions because they can see the, 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 the culture shifting and they can kind of see on the horizon what's coming towards them and they need to think very deeply about the life decisions they're making in, in view of these changes that are happening. And so the, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as they had none. Now, this phrase, the appointed time has grown, grown very short. There are a ton of people who read this passage and conclude that Paul thought he was living in the last days. <sighs> I haven't said this in a while. A text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. I'll say it again. A text without its context, without the, the, the text around it to give it you know, some context, is a pretext, it's an excuse for a proof text to make it say whatever you want it to say. You've got to read verses in context of, their, of everything that's around them, what's happening historically to understand what's happening here. We've already seen that the cur- current cultural crisis in Paul's day was increasingly open persecution of Christians. Rome was now sanctioning this, thanks to Nero. But this has nothing to do with what we call the eschaton, the ending of the age. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, the Greek word here for this, uh, this crisis or this time is kairos, which means a time or a season. It has nothing to do with the end times. Paul was not thinking that this was the end of the world He just understood that this season that the church had experienced, the early church, of blessing and being able to move about freely and interact with people and spread the gospel, that's changing. That's changing. 
But I, I, want, I want to warn you about reading Scripture in that way. You read that verse and you go, well, Paul must have been wrong. Paul was wrong. So that's, we need to stop and consider the implications of holding a view that essentially says, Paul is wrong here. And I read that in several commentaries this week. That's alarming to me. Because this isn't Ecclesiastes. When we, when we studied through Ecclesiastes, we said, this is a treatise on a false worldview written by Solomon from a perspective that does not include the living God and his equation. And that's the reason that it's in the Bible. This is not that. This is a letter from Paul the Apostle uh, giving truth and guidance to the early church in the form of a letter that we know that God inspired. So this is God's word. This is not Paul's best thoughts about God. And if Paul is wrong and the Holy Spirit is the one superintending Paul's writing such that Paul is saying what the Spirit wants him to say, then you're actually implying that the Holy Spirit was wrong. You don't want to do that. Or maybe you don't believe that the Scriptures are breathed out, inspirato, inspired by God. That's not a good place to land either. So we got to be more careful and thoughtful about the Scriptures and, and more careful with our interpretation of the Scriptures Paul wrote this, most scholars agree, in 64 A.D., and we know that he was put to death in 65 A.D. by Nero, along with Peter. I think Paul knew his time was short. I think it's that simple. This, this kairos, my time is coming to an end. This time is coming to an end. This age of the apostles, the, the, the spreading of the gospel freely among the Roman Empire, that's all coming to an end. So you go back and you look at verses 29, 30, and 31 about the time has grown short and you can see now the urgency of Paul because he sees what's coming on the horizon. And we go on to verse 30. He said, And those who mourn as though they are not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they have no goods. He's just elaborating on the, the theme. Don't be overly engrossed in your situation and in your circumstances so that you miss out on what the Lord is doing at this moment in time. Don't get so caught up in your situation that you miss what God is doing. Live, living as though they had no goods. You know, one of the things that the Roman government was doing for the first time was confiscating Christians' possessions. They just come in and take your house, take your stuff, take your dog, all of it. And, and so this was a reality for them. So Paul's advice is just adopt this mindset that you don't have any earthly possessions and then there's nothing to grieve over when the government takes your stuff. We probably ought to start thinking about that. <clears throat> and go ahead and file that one away, saints. We're probably going to need it one day soon. But <clears throat> those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with it. He says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Same logic, different application. And we'll circle back to this just in a moment, uh, but let's keep going for now. Um, every time I say circle back, I think of what's your name and the, the press secretary. It drives me nuts. Um, verse 32, <laughs> sorry, I digress. I want you to be free from anxieties, Paul says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the, 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Those aren't bad things. It's just part of your attention is here in this life and part of it's on eternity. There's a, there's a division of your attention and what you can give your attention to. And so Paul wants these singles at Corinth, these single young adults, to be free from concerns, free from anxieties. Anxiety means to be obsessed with something, or to, it can even mean to be split in your thinking about something. I can't decide which thing I want, so I'm obsessing about this decision day and night, day and night. And so, so singles in the room, when, when it comes to this issue of marriage, Paul is saying, especially in this context, you ought to be on your knees asking for wisdom about marriage if that's something you feel like you want in life. Because God loves it when his kids humbly ask him to help them or give them wisdom about something. It's like, ask him. That's always the right thing to do. That's always the right thing to do. Is this the right time for me, Lord, to, to do this good thing? Remember, there's a timing component here. And so the reason that for asking God that question when you're single is because it's no longer a question once you're married. It's no longer a question. Do you want me to stay married to this person? Not a question. It's not a question. And if you ask it, God will say, yes, I want you to stay married to this person. We've already read that passage here in, in the text. Paul would say that, Married person's interests are divided, and he's right. Marriage is wonderful, but it brings anxieties that single people don't experience. Add some kids to the mix. You, you need, you say, I just don't have enough anxiety. Have some kids. That'll, that'll change it. Some extra mouths to feed, and you'll see firsthand. Again, in the context of this persecution beginning to ramp up, these are the kinds of important considerations to think through before making any kind of life decision that's going to set the course for your life. And given what's coming upon the church, Paul just wants the single people in the church to be focused on the Lord. And in truth, we all ought to be more focused on the Lord. We all ought to be, just as Jesus challenged the people of his day in Luke 14, Jesus said these great crowds were following him and accompanying him. And at one point he turns to them and in Luke 14 he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, it's Mother's Day, hate your mom, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life cannot be my disciple. And he's saying that our love for our own families ought to seem like hatred in comparison to our devotion to Jesus. That's something we all need to consider. Whether you're single, married, divorced, whatever your situation in life, we need to be thinking about that reality. Verse 35 here, Paul goes on, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. As the clearest expression of Paul's intent and purpose in this passage is to promote the church's good order and to secure the church's undivided devotion to the Lord. Jesus wants us to be single-minded, 
when it comes to him. And so for the singles facing some of these decisions, these Corinthian believers were facing, it's, it's really urgent. This is, Paul has a sense of urgency here. I was thinking about this staying single thing, and I was thinking about uh, Jen and I have a dear friend who was a co-worker of ours from our campus ministry days, and her name is Margot. And I was thinking about Margot this week. Um, Margot joined the staff of Worldwide Discipleship Association. It was the ministry we used to work for at the University of Georgia. She joined that in 1978. I was four. She joined in 1978. And she has been serving and loving and teaching college students ever since. Even to this day. And by her own choice... Margot has chosen to remain single. Now, Jen and I had the privilege of working with her for 10 years on the University of Georgia campus. And I confess, there were times I felt really bad for Margot. It's just she had a roommate sometimes, but most of the time she was going home to an apartment by herself. And um, I look back now, especially after this week of studying this passage, I look back now and I I can see how single-minded her devotion to the Lord was. Just completely laser-focused on the mission of Jesus Christ and how much freedom she had and continues to have to love Jesus and to disciple college students. And she especially loves international students. And she could do all that in a way that Jen and I could not do because we had rugrats running around trying to manage our boys, and then later, you know, Abby coming into the mix. And it was well, trying, to, trying to just keep home from blowing up most days, you know. Margot had such freedom to minister single-heartedly with, with just a singular focus on these students. Man, it's just something that we could never attain to because we had all these other things to, to attend to in our lives. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, that his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's not sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. He's not led by the urgency of his feelings, but led by the commitment and the devotion to the person. That's the distinction here. He will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So everything in this section this morning has been building to this. Again, in the context of being single, the urgency is clear that God would have you clarify your secondary callings. What do I mean by secondary? Well, marriage is a secondary calling. If you're called to be in Christ Jesus, that is your primary calling, and then everything else is secondary to that. So, uh, again, he wants them to clarify secondary callings like marriage. But in order to do that, and if you're in the room today and you're, and you're a single young adult, uh, you need to stop and deeply consider your primary calling. You need to deeply consider and ask and spend time in prayer saying, Lord, what does this look like on my life? Are you calling me to be here in our culture, to minister here, 
to have a family, to, to take on a wife and, and potentially children down the road as part of what you called me to secondarily? Or are you calling me to some kind of missions or ministry that would require singular focus from my life? You've got to ask the question. You've got to ask the Lord. And the process requires time. It would help if you have some, some trusted, godly counsel and, and people around you who love you, who will pray for you as you wrestle with this question. Then you've got to stop and deeply consider your primary calling. And then you can attend to other things like whether or not you're going to get married or remain single. And if you're married, adding kids. But you have to ask yourself, how bad do you want this? And could you live without it? Can you live without it? Because Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I, kn- I knew I couldn't be a single guy. I knew. I mean, I think when I, as early as five years old, I just was like, <laughs> I got to I gotta get married. I got I to gotta get out of kindergarten and find a wife. <laughs> I just, sometimes you just know. You just know. Um, but, but, you, but consider that prayerfully. And then Paul wraps up here, uh, 39 to 40, says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Don't marry a pagan, marry a believer. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So Paul wraps up this challenge. And I want to invite you to consider that it's highly likely that Paul was at one time married. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. He was on the council, the Sanhedrin, at a fairly young age, younger than most people were asked to be on the council. And we know from antiquity that a man could not be on the council if he were not married, because the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, held that in such high esteem uh, as, as from God. And we do, so what we don't know is what happened to his wife. He never speaks about her. We we could conjecture that she died, but we just don't know. My personal theory is that um, his conversion on the road to Damascus may have resulted in her leaving the marriage. But again, we don't know. But we can say with confidence that Paul was given a great deal. He, he gave a great deal of thought and consideration to this topic and that he was absolutely filled with and led by the Holy Spirit as he writes these words. And so we need to take them into our hearts and consider these things. For this present form of this world is passing away, he says. This world is passing away. This was the beginning of a major shift in the church in history. They had experienced some persecution, uh, some, some primarily from the Jews. And you can read that in Acts. You'll see things happen in different communities, or uh, especially if they, the, the, uh, the apostles come in and start meeting in a synagogue and then the Jews get really torqued about it, and, and they beat somebody up. Um, but, but this marks a significant change for the church in history, a transition from some irregular and light persecution to consistent, full-on persecution. And I'll just say to you this morning, I believe that we are on the cusp of another shift in Western civilization. I don't say that to frighten you or send you home to, to like sit in a corner and have an anxiety attack, but 
I want you to understand what I believe I see happening. So I asked myself the question this week, what are, <coughs> what are the signs that would lead me to believe that, that, that we're in, the, in a shift now headed towards persecution? I want to give you four, uh, four answers to that question, though I think there are many more. Um, and th- these are just the top four that came to me this week as I was praying. Number one, the surveillance state setting up totalitarianism. Uh, we, we had the Church of Planned Parenthood yesterday morning. If you've not been to TCAP, you've you got to go. It's second Saturday of the month at 10 a.m. A bunch of Christians from all over the region just gathered to worship, to praise God, to pray, and, and to preach the Word of God and, and let the Spirit deal with this issue in our nation. Um, and, and it was just a sweet time. And as I was dri- driving back through Everett on my way home, uh, stopped to get some Jesus chicken, um, and then go home. Um, I, I was driving through, and I noticed in Everett there was a camera on every light pole. At, not just every third or fourth or on it. Every light pole had a camera. And China is already surveilling Canada and parts of the U.S. They're recording everything and running it through AI as part of their social credit system. If you don't know what social credit is, it works just like your credit here in the U.S., except um, it doesn't simply limit or enable your purchasing power. It limits or enables your ability to move around and socialize or go to school or not go to school. They, They control every aspect of the lives of the people in China through social credit. And it's coming to the United States. They record it all. And the score, the social credit score, determines whether, again, you're allowed to go to school, make purchases, whether you can travel, whether you can get married, and on and on and on. I would recommend that you pick up a copy of a book called Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. That phrase, live not by lies, is part of a uh, a speech, the last essay given by Alexander Solzhenitsyn before he was thrown into the gulag. He said, live not by lies. Don't pretend like all these things that are happening in the culture are right and good just so that you can get get along, get, get by and get along with this shift. Don't do that. You're living by lies if you do that. So, so again, uh, coming surveillance state with totalitarianism, that's number one. Number two, the shift conditioning our children through an increasingly godless public school system. Now, that's not to say there aren't some good educators in the public school system. There are, uh, but they are swimming upstream. Critical race theory and intersectionality, uh, the Black Lives Matter agenda, All these other entities bringing opposing and hostile worldviews and religions against biblical Christianity in the classroom. And and it's taking hold in our nation right now. Not to mention the new sex ed curriculum that was approved last year in our state, promoted and funded by Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I'm sure they want the best for our children. They murder children in the womb. I'm sure they have the best interests of our children in mind. There's two. There's number three, the subsequent division that all this is bringing about. (laughs) 
can't have a conversation with people anymore. Our nation is more divided than at any other time in history. I personally believe that if we were attacked from without, I don't think we could stand. Our own infightings like blood in the water in Russia and China are circling like sharks. And then number four, antipathy and increasing hostility towards Christians and churches in Western culture. Just last night, I read and and watched the video of the arrest of Pastor Pawlowski. This is a man who survived as a child the evil of communism as a a child in Poland. He's already lived through it once. And he's run the police out of his church on two occasions because they came in wanting to, uh, these ordinances to shut them down and tell them that they can and can't do this in the church. And he's run them out. The videos are awesome. I'm just like, ah, I love that guy. And then they they pulled him over in the middle of the highway as he was coming home from church yesterday and arrested him in the middle of the street like a common criminal. Hunted him down like he was a terrorist. Police cars swarming around him as he drove home from church. They they order him out of the car and make him kneel down in the middle of the highway. And I just say to you, man, don't think that it can't happen here. I could go on with more examples. That's just four, but I think those suffice for now to answer the question, What are the signs that lead me to believe that we're shifting towards persecution? The other question is, what do we do? How do we prepare in light of that? And here's what I'd say to you. If this is true once more as it was in Paul's day, and I believe that it is, we ought to be very careful and prayerful about becoming engrossed in that which is temporal and temporary. We need to be very careful about getting caught up in this life, too much, in this world. This is a clarion call to let worldly goods go. And it reminds me of the lyrics of a hymn that I grew up singing called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I just want to read for you the first and fourth stanzas of that song because I was, just, I was weeping in my office as I was writing my sermon yesterday, finishing it up, and I was thinking about this hymn. And, and I began to sing it, and I just began to weep because the words are so powerful. It says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. When you get to the fourth stanza, it says this, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gift are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. This body, they they can kill this body. But God's truth will abide forever, and his kingdom is forever, and we will be with him forever. So rather than fixating on all that we stand to lose in this life, including our actual lives, we instead fix our eyes on what is eternal. We live for that. We invest in that. We accept nothing less than that. Those of you who are here this morning in person and and people watching on the live stream right now, 
our kids and, and uh, the ER kids workers in the building, all of us at some point are going to face three scenarios in the days ahead. And I want to give you these scenarios. Again, I say this inclusively, and what I'm about to describe as coming possibilities, there are no exceptions among us. I believe we'll experience one open persecution. It's coming whether we will it or not. And even if we grow and expand ministry as a church, I want you to know the leadership here at Emmaus Road is still thinking about how to, how to overnight pivot to Secret House Church. We're working on that, thinking about that all the time. Number one, open persecution. Number two, deliverance from persecution. <laughs> in addition to all the signs that we see pointing to a rise in hostility and aggression towards Christians, I believe there's also a rise in the frequency and intensity of the signs that we're told to watch for that mark the coming of our Lord Jesus and our meeting him in the air. In fact, I'm starting a Wednesday night Bible study in a couple of weeks at my house, and, and, and we're going to detail those things, walk through eschatology together, if that's of interest to you. Um, so, so open persecution is a possibility. Deliverance from persecution is a possibility. I think the third possibility is the one that's a blended one. It's both. I think we're going to experience some persecution to some extent before the Lord comes for his church. And I think we need to prepare our hearts for that. I can't say with certainty which is the case, so three seems the most likely to me, but whether we live for Christ or we die for him, he is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. And we must strive to remain single-minded. Truth is, if we had to go home this afternoon and sort all this out by tomorrow morning, figure it all out. Some of us would find that we're far too entangled in this world and in this life to give ourselves over wholeheartedly to forwarding God's agenda at this moment in history. I want to challenge you with that thought. Some of us, if you, if you just went home and spent the rest of the afternoon in prayer and reading your word, you, you might just realize that you're too entangled in this world to really be wholeheartedly invested in God's kingdom agenda at this moment. And Jesus is calling us to be supremely devoted to himself and his working in the world at this moment in history. When he comes, it's all about our devotion to himself. It's, all, it's not about our demeanor. It's not about how we look. It's not about whether our, our lives look like they're put together well. It's about whether our hearts are fully surrendered to him. And so that's the heart that lives single-minded. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Every, every soul in this room, every family that's represented here, we ask that you would help us to shift to being single-minded in these days. We're far too entangled in this world and in this life. And so, Lord, help us to, to, to hear from you, to follow you, to submit to you, all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I say anything else, I was instructed by my wife to tell the women that there are chocolates and flowers <laughs> in the hallway and you need to take them with you or I have to eat all of it. The chocolates and the flowers. So please take that home, moms. That's our gift to you today. I'll just say this as we wrap up. This is our hour, church. If persecution is bearing down, let us be found guilty of proclaiming Jesus to our neighbors and the nations.
If Christ is coming to steal away his bride to the bridal chamber, let us be found faithfully laboring in the field when he comes. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.